The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In uh, June of this year, there was a meeting that happens every three years of uh, the Insight Meditation teachers in our kind of general Insight Meditation movement. And um, there are three centers that we um, kind of connect, primary meditation centers, big ones that are connected to, which is Spirit Rock, Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and Gaia House in England. And the meeting is of teachers, primarily teachers who teach at these three places, as guest teachers or whatever. And there were about um, 60 teachers who came. It's a meeting that happens every three years, kind of a chance to get together and share concerns and issues and learn from each other. And uh, it happened at Spirit Rock in June. And one of the remarkable things that happened there, that I've never seen before in our general wider movement community, is uh, there was a letter signed by 2,000 people to the teachers from insight meditation practitioners from all over the world. And it was a request that the teachers provide guidance and leadership around the environmental issues of our times, the climate change, um, things like that. And it was quite impressive. We, we, as a group of teachers, we sat kind of in these concentric circles in the meditation hall at Spirit Rock. And in the middle of the circle was a Buddha. And when it came time to present this letter, this petition, it was presented as a very, very long scroll uh, with all these names on the scroll. And it was rolled out um, on the floor from kind of one end to the other. It was quite a long, it was quite impressive to see it there. So from that request, there was, I mean, together with that request, there was a session about uh, climate change. Um, an expert on the topic came and presented to us and showed us documentary and things. And so it was a topic that came up quite strongly. And there was discussions about what kind of guidance and leadership do the teachers in our community provide, our community and people. And... Um, <clears throat> In many ways, uh, the insight meditation movement of all these centers are probably somewhat behind the curve in responding to this issue. Um, uh, other religions have been much more actively involved in addressing the some religions, and they have white papers and t topics and concerns. And perhaps because we're such a nation, nascent movement, we're still kind of formative period because finding ourselves and we're still and it's still very much rooted in meditation practice and retreat practice. And uh, slowly we're growing and becoming uh, more broadly, a more broad kind of religious community that has broader interests than just meditation practice, broader ways of responding to the world. So maybe that's part of the reason why we're kind of slow in, in, as a community as a whole of addressing these kinds of issues. But here we were, this, this wonderful request came for us to do this. So, um, so the teachers there, um, I don't know if there was a every, uh, unanimous, but it was certainly the sense of the meeting, that kind of the great assent of the majority, was that we as a community of teachers would address these issues. And that one of the things that we would do is that we would uh, dedicate uh, the first week of October to what we coined as the Earth Care, Earth Care Week. 
And we would, all, rather than, you know, if we all could kind of give talks and address this issue in our own way, uh, on our own, uh, individually, that's probably always good. But if we would do it together at the same time, then at least it has some bigger impact, bigger kind of momentum, bigger feeling that this is more, it's more, more people are connected than just one individual here and there. And so uh, this uh, first seven days of October is going to be called, in our movement, <laughs> it's called Earth Care Week. And so here at IMC, I'll give some talks about the environment and nature, and uh, we'll maybe have some other activities. I don't know what we do, but um, somehow connected to this topic during that week. I thought that, um, one, one thought I had was that all the, when I'm teaching at IMC that week, that all the dana, the teacher dana and dana donations to IMC, could be um, uh, uh, dedicated for something that supports kind of the environmental cause that's somehow connected to us, that makes sense for us. And what I thought of was, my proposal has been that we would do it, we have this new retreat center, and um, it would be a really good green thing if we had a solar water heater on the roof, because we use a tremendous amount of propane down there. And I think that uh, reducing our carbon footprint and reducing the amount of energy we use there, uh, one of the most dramatic things we can do is uh, put a solar water heater. We, it's all kind of, it's water heated, it's water's a big deal, hot water in the center. So I thought that might be nice to do that as a community, to try to raise that money. So uh, that's the background of today. And so I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Buddhism and nature, responding to the natural world, the natural crisis of our times. Uh, we see that um, the connection with nature, uh, the natural world, goes quite deep in the Buddhist tradition. And all the way back to the time of the Buddha, the Buddha gave a teaching once where he said that if practitioners go in to meditate, go to practice in the forest at the foot of trees, then uh, the, the way, the path of awakening will survive for a long time. And that's a quite a powerful statement. Now, back then, they didn't have meditation centers to go to. So, you know, if you really wanted to do intensive practice in some quiet place, uh, it made sense to go into the woods, into nature, um, because of what was available back then. But still, uh, I think it's more than that. I think there's something about what happens to human beings, that can happen to human beings when they, in the presence of nature, certain kinds of nature, that uh, is very educational, kind of shifts and changes uh, how we understand ourselves, how we understand our relationship to nature, and how it uh, shifts our priorities about what is important. And that if we have more time in nature, in the natural world, things begin to shift and change. Um, the, um, uh, uh, the classic meditation instruction that Buddha gave, um, the, first one, the, primarily the first thing he gave, like in the instructions for, for mindfulness, was uh, uh, go to the foot of a tree. Go sit and rather than don't go to you know don't go to IRC, <laughs> you know, but rather go to a foot of a tree. So go into a place of nature, and um, there's a beautiful kind of pastoral account of the uh, told in the in the words of the Buddha of him finding the place in Bodhgaya uh, when he was searching for his own awakening. Uh, beautiful description of how beautiful this place was with grove of trees and pure. Uh, cl uh, clean river flowing by and 
and how delightful the location was that he was going to sit in um, and then eventually become awakened. And then it said that uh, every significant... Oh, so this is nice. I'll tell it this way. Um, one of the great teachers uh, in the 20th century, Buddhist teachers, was a Cambodian man by the name of Mahagusananda. And uh, he became the supreme patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism after the Pol Pot time, after the whole devastation of Cambodia. Partly because he was one of the last people stand, last monks standing. There's so many of them were, you know, were massacred. And he partly survived, he survived because he was practicing in Thailand at that time. And uh, so then he went back to help support Cambodia afterwards. And one of, the, one of the things he did as a leader of Cambodian Buddhism was he started getting uh, uh, planting trees, promoting tree planting in Cambodia. I guess the countryside had been devastated partly. Uh, some of it was from the Vietnam War still, you know, the bomb, Americans bombed Cambodia and other things. And so I had a chance to meet Mahagosananda in the late 1980s, I think, early 1990s. And um, I was having lunch with him and and I was, you know, I, you know, I don't know if it was the most polite thing to say, but I kind of wanted to draw him out a little bit. And I, I said, you know, uh, you know, you're a monk, you're a Buddhist teacher. What are you doing planting trees? Shouldn't you be, you know, teaching meditation and teaching the Dharma or something? And, um, and he very generously to me uh, responded and said, uh, the Buddha was born under a tree, was enlightened under a tree, taught under trees, and died under a tree. And that was his answer to me. <laughs> so the, the emphasis on the tree is nature and being part of the, the natural world. And um, so there's early connection to the trees, to nature. The Buddha talked about, there's a few places in the discourses the Buddha talks about trees being like friends having trees and having a friendship with trees. And just like you wouldn't want to hurt your friend, you wouldn't want to break a branch off a tree. It was a teaching. The, um, and then down through the time, there's been uh, a good argument has been made that uh, the survival of Buddhist, especially Buddhist practice, um, is do- has been done by those monks and nuns who have gone into the forest, into the woods to practice there. Uh, and to this day, uh, uh, in Thailand, the people who I'm most inspired by in their practice in Thailand are the Thai forest monks, the monks and nuns who go into the, into the, into the wilderness there to practice what wilderness is left. And in Burma also, um, the revival of the meditation tradition in Burma uh, had its origins in um, monastics in the late 1800s who went into the woods, into nature, to practice there. So in this way, I think uh, those of us who practice insight meditation here in the West owe, uh, and in some ways, the the presence of these teachings we teach here to the fact that there were people who revived this meditation practice by going into the woods and finding solace, refuge, meaning, teachings there. so one of the one of the if you go to if you go spend time with forest monastics they'll emphasize how nature teaches us that the dharma is taught through nature in fact some uh, forest monks in thailand will say the word dharma means nature there's no separation between the dharma and nature and if you go into nature the nature can teach you in a variety of ways uh, one of the things that it has taught me uh, that uh, has been very meaningful for me 
is um, it has shifted my relationship to myself. It's easy to become self-centered. It's easy to kind of put oneself at the center of the universe as I'm all important. And even if you think, even like in my case, where I thought the way I was really important was by being um, um, really a bad person. <laughs> and that's another way, just, you know, really terrible person or something. And, and so, and, uh, but uh, I found that when I practiced in nature, I spent a lot of time, I spent th- uh, three years living in um, a Zen monastery deep in Los Padres National Wilderness. If you've ever been to Tassajara, it's the end of a very long dirt road in the midst of kind of wild Los Padres National Wilderness. And it was very meaningful for me to be there, practicing there, because uh, I would, um, um, uh, you know, in, in the presence of these mountains that are there, the presence of the wilderness and the trees and that were there, um, there were all kinds of desires and all kinds of self-identities that I carried with me that would fall away and not seem so relevant in the context of that kind of place. I've seen that when I kind of spend a lot of time in an urban area, that my, uh, what I think is important shifts and kind of uh, from what it would be if what I think is important when I'm in a natural world. Uh, sometimes in a, in, a, in a big urban place with a lot of people, um, uh, what other people think uh, is uh, fitting into conventions of our time uh, become more important. Uh, materialism becomes more important. Acquiring, having things becomes more important. And it's beautiful to go into nature where you, it's possible to feel peaceful, at ease, feel at home, and not need to have a lot of stuff, not need to have a lot of people, not need to, not need to have people's approval. Um, you know, I've had the experience of spilling f- food on my shirt and feeling mortified by the people who are going to see that. And then uh, having dirty clothes in the wilderness with my friends there, and it's not, you know, it's not, not relevant, you know, it's not really a, so important. Um, and um, so the standards of how we hold ourselves, how we want to present ourselves, shifts and change uh, in these different kinds of settings. I'm ver- I was very fond as a young man of Chinese nature uh, uh, paintings, these paintings, these inkbrush paintings, where they show these beautiful large mountains and natural scenery. And if you look close, you see, uh, in some way, some seemingly in harmony with the setting, a very small figure, person, uh, with a little hut maybe, living there. Um, and rather than uh, the person dominating the picture, as some Western uh, art would have, I mean, there's, you know, you know the Mona Lisa has a lot of na- nature around Mona Lisa, right? But who notices the nature? <laughs> um, and uh, so the, um, to shift, the, the centrality of human beings from the picture of what life is all about to nature being what life's about. And we have a harmonious a place of harmony to live in the midst of nature as part of nature in harmony with it uh, without the kind of arrogance and conceit that human people have often had around their place uh, in nature and, and, or, or simply ignoring it as part of the teaching of being in nature and feeling there. Um, so there's two kind of general directions in which the, uh, nature kind of impacts, you know, in terms of Buddhist practice where nature can impact us. Uh, one is that um, we can see nature in ourselves and we can see ourselves in nature. Uh, when we see a nature in ourselves, 
means that we see that the laws of nature, the patterns of nature, the, the context of nature, what goes on in nature, um, goes on in us as well. So they, um, that uh, nature has certain uh, laws that it follows, certain patterns, certain uh, causal uh, patterns that it follows, and these patterns uh, fall into us as a time-honored Buddhist teaching. That um, uh, uh, the uh, impermanent nature of, of the world around us, that things are born, they live for a while, they die, that things decay, get sick and old, that it's uh, said that it's very easy for human beings not to remember this. And when you go into nature, it's uh, much easier sometimes to notice um, the, the uh, changing and impermanent nature of it all, how it's all changing all the time. And so we change, and just understand that we change, that we are the nature to get sick, we are the nature of to get old, we are the nature of to die, um, uh, and that this is part of, our, part of who we are, um, is considered very important. The uh, reverse also goes that um, we see ourselves in nature, and this has the idea that um, uh, how we are, and how we carry ourselves, how we behave, has an impact in nature itself. That uh, we are not independent from nature, that how we live our life is consequential and affects the natural world. And so if we live, if we are ethical, then live an ethical life, then that has a certain impact on the natural world that's different than if we live an unethical life. Or to maybe make it more broadly, the Buddhist, world, Buddhist uh, Buddhism likes to differentiate between a skillful inner life and an unskillful one. Certain kinds of beha- how we are in our minds, what motivates us, has a big impact on the world around us. So the ancient story, kind of a little myth that uh, is offered in Buddhism, is that uh, there was a some mythic tree with a huge, huge canopy. Maybe it covered many blocks, city blocks, or something huge thing, um, and it produced fruit. And anybody who wanted to can come along and pick a fruit from this tree. And someone uh, became greedy, and rather than just picking one fruit or two fruit to have for lunch, that person harvested a whole bunch for, for himself. And, 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 and in, the, in the wake of that greed and taking all this fruit off the tree, uh, the, fruit stopped, uh, the, the tree stopped producing fruit for everybody. So you see this is kind of myth, a folklore kind of teaching that... Um, that, has, uh, that is true in our modern world because of what's called the tragedy of the commons. And a very important term uh, that um, the tragedy of the commons means that um, we share a common area, you know, nature, a common domain. And so if, so for example, in the commons back in the colonial days was you know, a central square, a place in the middle of a town that everyone shared together. Um, and if one person, um, you know, drops their tr- little piece of trash in the commons, you know, it doesn't really affect it, it's fine. But if um, everyone dumps their trash in the commons, then it becomes, you know, some place that's not so pl- not pleasant to go anymore. If, w- if only one of us had a car in the Bay Area, I think that the, the, smog, the smog from that car would be negligible. You know, it, you know, just like, you know, who would care? There was a little bit of smoke coming out. And maybe they wouldn't even need a catalytic converter because it just doesn't matter so much because it gets dissipated so quickly. But um, the tragedy of the commons is when we have, in the Bay Area, 
uh, I don't know how many, but I think we have probably five million cars that drive around the Bay Area. And the cumulative effect of those, all those individual cars uh, builds up to the tragedy of the commons, builds up to this larger uh, damage into the environment. And the, and the damage is, uh, you know, it's interesting to study the damage that uh, uh, air pollution makes uh, from cars in the Bay Area. Um, because it is not just um, on us that drive the cars, but sometimes it's disproportionate for other populations, other people in other places. A tremendous amount of the smog in the Bay Area gets blown uh, into the area of Fresno, into the Central Valley up against the Sierras. And not only are the uh, trees dying in the central, uh, lower realms of the central uh, Sierras because of the smog from the Bay Area, but also seemingly there's a we know there's a much higher incidence of autism and asthma in uh, children who, who live in places where there's a lot of smog. And that happens, in, uh, it's pointed out now, in children who live um, along the freeways uh, in the Bay Area, but also children who live there in the Fresno area. And one of the, one of the implications of this, one of the meanings of this, is that often enough, the impact of environmental uh, damage uh, is often on people who have the least ability to speak up uh, and defend themselves or do something about it, the underserved, under-listened-to uh, voices in our society. And so, to what degree are the, the privileged people who create, uh, consume more, create more environmental damage, not intentionally, uh, but indirectly because the damage happens far away. Uh, there are... Uh, uh, components of cell phones and computers that are rare metals that um, the mining of them are affecting the environment and people far, far away. And so do we take that into account? To what degree do we have a responsibility for people on the other side of the world because of what we consume and how, you know, what we do? So the, the reason why it's interesting um, is this idea that um, uh, what Buddhism teaches is that uh, how we live our lives and that what motivates our lives, the ethics of our lives, uh, has an impact on the environment. <coughs> and this is a, a teaching goes back to the time of the Buddha. The, um, uh, and there are myths that uh, go back to that time, Buddhist myths, that describe the degradation of the environment, uh, dramatic degradation of the environment, directly as a result of people's greed, people's uh, unethical behavior, lying and violence, uh, all kind of spill out and affect the environment. And, we've, uh, and so this goes on to this day. And now with the aggregate, the sum total of how many people are consuming so much and involved in so many different, um, you know, the tragedy of the commons builds in where the impact becomes larger and larger. And the sad thing about this is that um, because my driving my car is so negligible, you know, it's just a one car out of five million or one car out of, I don't know how many cars there are in the world, you know, I can get away with my little damage, I, you know, my little smog. It's not really, I'm not really the one who's responsible. They are responsible. <laughs> Those people. <laughs> you know, someone else's job is to take responsibility for what's going on. The government's supposed to do it, the, them, or some, some them, whoever them is. And I, I don't think that that is the approach of Buddhist spirituality or the teachings of the Buddha. I think the general approach of Buddhism always is to uh, begin with oneself, uh, begin with one's own responsibility, to look at one's own actions and behavior 
and then try to understand uh, what one's own contribution is and try to, um, to live in a way that's more ethical or has a better consequence in the world. But then it gets more interesting, I believe, in what the Buddha taught around all this, in that it's possible with the kind of uh, environmental uh, crises that we live in in our, society, in our world these days uh, to get really heavy about it and to feel that um, we have an obligation, we have a duty, we have to get, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm guilty, I'm such a terrible person, and, you know, it's hopeless, and, and we just despair about it all. And it's pretty easy to despair, it's pretty easy to see that it's, people have been saying for some time that we've, we've gone beyond a tipping point now, where it's very hard to now recover from the amount of um, uh, damage that's been created and on climate change and stuff. Uh, so it's possible to have all these kinds of reactions that actually weigh us down. Um, and um, one of the interesting approaches of the Buddha, as I read the teachings of the Buddha, is that he never offered his teachings of practice, teachings of Buddhism, as an obligation. It, uh, there was never a guilt trip put on people. Uh, it was more like a generous offering. Here's a possibility. If you're interested in freedom, if you're interested in creating a better world, there are possibilities of how to do that. And here, these, these can be done this way. Uh, but you're not, no one's obligated to do it. And perhaps it's a little bit of the difference between certain theistic religions and a karmic religion, where theistic religions sometimes are external authority that's telling you what has to be and what, what you need to do. Um, and, and the... And the um, Whereas a karmic religion, the focus is more on your own karma, your own behavior, and the, what you actually do. And so uh, uh, the spirit, I think, of Buddhism around these kinds of issues is to approach it as part of our practice, not part of our guilt, not part of our despair, not part of the, our attachments, not part of the way in which we get caught and constricted by this, but to take it as part of our practice and try to find how to be free in the midst of it. Uh, not free so we can ignore these issues, but free so that we can respond out of generosity rather than obligation. We can respond out of love and delight, inspiration, enthusiasm, rather than out of a sense of burden. And uh, we can respond out of a sense of possibility and um, rather than a sense of impossibility. Um, so the spirit, the way that we come out of this, I think for Buddhists becomes very important. And so there's this interplay then in Buddhist practice between our own inner life and how we are with it uh, and our external behavior and how we, what we do. Sometimes Buddhists emphasize one more, often, more than the other. Sometimes Buddhism emphasizes Buddhist teachers and Buddhist practitioners spend a phase of their life or a time in their life or whatever to emphasize the inner, to clarify, to purify, to liberate their hearts and minds. And sometimes there's a phase of life where the emphasis is more the external world and trying to respond and deal with the world. And so that phase shifts over time and goes back and forth with different people, different communities. But it's important to realize there's both, that um, there's time for both, and that they're, they're meant to be not, not so separate. There was a beautiful um, teaching, I, for me, inspiring for me many years ago, about a Zen teacher in Japan, uh, who said that uh, in Zen there are only two things. There is meditation, and then there's um, sweeping the temple courtyard. 
and then the, then and after that was added after a pause, I guess there was added, and the whole world is your courtyard. So the idea there's meditation, there's clarifying yourself, there's emptying yourself of greed, hate, and delusion, there's clarifying the uh, the mind, becoming free spiritually, and then uh, with those eyes, with that heart, then being open and awake to the world around us and taking care of it, responding to it and caring for the world around us, but not out of obligation, but, um, um, but rather, I think that's what the heart wants to do. Many years ago, when I was a brand new uh, Buddhist practitioner, just getting interested in it, I went to the L.A. Zen Center and uh, 40 years ago or so. And I went to do, they had a kind of like, you know, just an evening sit, uh, meditation and Dharma talk. And I guess they had two meditation sessions with a period of walking meditation. They walked Zen very slowly around the perimeter of the meditation hall. And I was walking behind someone who was wearing black robes. So someone had been practicing for, because, you know, seemed like a more serious practitioner. Been there for a while. And as we were walking around, um, uh, we were walking by these black mats that people sit on, right? And one of them, they were all kind of lined up kind of neatly in Zen, but one of them was slightly tilted to the side, a little bit askew. And to my complete surprise, she bent down and straightened it out. And I thought, why would anybody bother with that? <laughs> Why would anybody bother straightening out the mat? I mean, it's like such a, you know, I was 20, you know, and if you'd seen my bedroom, you'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> you'd understand. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it had a big impact on me. But kind of, why did she do that? And the way she did it, I don't know how she did it, but... The, you know, my projection, my assumption was there was something very natural at ease. It's almost like she, almost as if she wasn't thinking about it, almost as if it was an extension of herself to reach down and adjust it. It was almost like it wasn't premeditated, almost like there was no separation. It was almost like there was no judgment. There was just, this is what, you know, it was a natural movement. It was, of course you would do that. So not that you have to go around and straighten mats now everywhere, but, uh, but that, that, that's, that way of responding to the world and others and to suffering of others and the suffering of the, of the world um, can have that kind of natural quality. It doesn't have to be uh, this duty and obligation and heaviness involved. And what it means is that each of us hopefully will respond in a way that's appropriate for us as who we are. There's so many different ways. In the circles that I travel in, it's pretty easy for me to hear how some people talk about uh, that. I feel, oh no, now I'm, there's, people are requiring me to respond. And uh, there's so many things to respond to, right? You read the papers, you, there's so, the world has enough suffering for all of us to, right, to handle. And so the sense of, oh, I have to do this and this and this and this, and it's just too much. But if I listen to uh, my heart or listen to who I am or that natural instinct, to respond, then I think each of us will find a way that works for us. And, but we can't be too passive about it. Well, I think one of the meanings of being awake in Buddhism is to pay attention to the world. Not just be awake in some kind of way that's important for you and be awake enough to feel relaxed yourself, 
but to actually actively be awake to the world, to pay attention, to be a witness to what goes on in our society. In a certain kind of way, be interested or motivated to notice the world you live in, to notice the suffering, to notice what goes on, so that your heart can respond in a nice way. The last thing I'll say is that um, this, uh, this Zen teaching about there's two things, meditation and sweeping a temple courtyard, the emphasis in here is on activities that a person does as opposed to identities a person acquires. The focus is on the activities we do as opposed to the experience we experience. And one of the uh, traps of Buddhism, Buddhist practice, is that because, especially in our circles, because the emphasis can be on a personal liberation that are, is possible to experience. You sit down and meditate, and meditation is kind of like a personal, you enter into a personal world and you're negotiating your inner life and yourself and all that. And, and the emphasis is on you know, becoming free of attachments and being free of prejudice, free of your suffering. And, um, and so it can, you know, it's kind of this personal kind of focus. And that goes along uh, here in the West many times with a rather unfortunately high degree of individualism in our society where it's all about me, myself, and mine. It's about my experience, what I get, who I am, where I fit in, me, myself. And, um, and there's a lot of suffering, this individualism. And so when Buddhism and individualism combine in this way, then there can be, we can, uh, it's easy for Buddhists to become myopic and, and can keep focusing back on themselves and themselves. And this is where the, the kind of the place is. But traditionally in Buddhism, uh, the, idea, the teachings of not-self is the idea is to free us from excessive individualism. There is a healthy way of practicing with oneself and focusing on oneself, but not to be limited and stuck in individualism, but in a sense to go beyond it. And that beyond it is to free ourselves from the clingings, the attachments, the fears that keep our heart and mind and our eyes closed to the world around us. And so, there are two things. There's to meditate. There's to do this inner work of clearing the ground. And then um, there's the sweeping the temple uh, courtyard. There's responding um, to the world around us. But responding in such a way that, and this is where I think the greatest ease can happen, responding in such a way that um, uh, it's almost as if we're not the ones responding. We're not the ones doing the work. It comes out of us with a certain kind of ease, at least in the way that I projected onto the woman who adjusted the, the mat. A silly little example, but could it be done the same way, uh, dealing with some of the large uh, issues of our society, of our world? Uh, can it be, can we clarify ourselves, can we empty ourselves, can we free ourselves in such a way that then we can uh, work passionately with great enthusiasm and ease without being limited by self-conceit. But it just comes out of us and we respond. And it becomes an expression of our practice um, and a joy of our practice to respond to the world, uh, not a burden to do it. So that's my wish and my hope, that uh, we can take our practice, we can do our meditation here, 
to learn how to respond to the world, how to sweep. Whatever you're sweeping needs to be done. But that sweeping comes out of you naturally, easily, not a burden, is, is, represents you and how you are in the world, what's right for you, and that it's a source of joy, uh, peace, that you then model for the world as well. That the world sees that it's possible to respond to the world, to suffering in the world, with enthusiasm, um, not with more suffering. And maybe it's too late, but if it's too late, um, it helps if there are some people who learn to face our inevitable death peacefully, without attachments and fear. And maybe that in the end will be our contribution. Maybe it can't be saved. So, um, so in a couple of months, we'll have Earth Care Week. And I don't know all the things that we might be able to do that week, but uh, so I'll certainly give some talks. And, um, and um, perhaps some of you will participate in that week and share with it in some ways. We have five minutes. So uh, anybody would like to um, say anything at this point or make a question? Gil, uh, uh, when you were talking, it reminded me of one of your talks, and, and um, I've kind of forgotten it, but you mentioned a practitioner who said, tongue-in-cheek, what bothers me about Buddhists is all they do is practice. When are they, when are they going to perform? And it, it kind of reminded me of what is the performance. Yeah, yeah it was Bob, uh, Bob Thur- Robert Thurman who said that, you know, all these Buddhists in America, they talk about practice, practice, practice. All they do is talk about practice. When, I want to know when, when's going to be the performance. <laughs> yeah, so they, so all they do is meditate, meditate, meditate. When are they going to sweep? When are they going to clean up? For, when are they going to clean up after themselves? <laughs> you know, if that's all we did was clean up after ourselves. That would be a good thing. You know, the amount of smog our cars create, the amount of, I mean, just the resources we do, many of us, the impact we have, just start there, clean up. I've learned to clean my bedroom. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when you were talking, Gil, about the Buddha meditating under a tree, I was wondering if for our Earth Care Week, we might have a meditation out in a park or something like that. I think it's a great idea. Uh, someone would like to organize it, I think it would be great. Uh-oh. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great idea. So, um, I think I'll preface this by, by saying that um, I, I careful of, or more. I, I increasingly am more careful about how much water I use and how much food I buy and things I eat, and so on, um, regarding sweeping. Um, uh, the world uh, is so complicated now. Um, I get in the mail every day. I never get a letter from a friend anymore. <laughs> but I get in the mail probably fifty or sixty pages worth of. Uh, uh, advertisements, um, 
uh, I contribute at the end of the year to um, nonprofit agencies, so almost every day I get a stack of stuff from them asking for more. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I was stopped in front of Trader Joe's to sign a petition that um, sounded very uh, reasonable, something I wanted to do. The guy had a, had a clipboard and a stack of paper uh, that I paid no attention to. But after I find the, signed the first one, he then asked me to sign another and another and another and another, and it just kept going on. And I had to say, uh, well, that's enough. I, I have other things to do. Um, when I try to read, I, I don't want to go on too much, but I'll give one more example. When I tried to read um, um, the propositions, for instance, from you know um, how to vote, they go on for three or four or ten pages. They're completely um, unreadable to me. So, so in other words, just, there's too much for any, any human being to be able to handle, to deal with. So that's, that's, that's part of the challenge. It's so much it's overwhelming how much there is to do. So part of being a wise person is being able to sort through that and, um, and, and uh, be wise about what you pick and choose and where you want to put your energy and effort and to limit yourself to be, so you can be more effective. can't be effective if we're trying to do everything. Uh, so what, you know, where, where, is, where is the, what's the best use of your time? And so this is where I think the, what speaks to your heart is important. What speaks to kind of what, you know, what's, what works for you? Uh, what's important for you? I mean, uh, it's possible that um, s uh, some of us should not be involved in, uh, in uh, environmental causes at all because uh, we have gifts and other things, other ways which we are in the world which helps people in other ways, which is more important, or that's our gift, our, our contribution. Let other people who are interested in the environment really work, do that. So, you know, this idea of not being burdened, but putting ourselves in a situation where we can be responsive and actively supportive, and then we have to be wise. And how, are you, how do you get to be wise? I mean, uh, it just there's so many good things to do in this world that we have to find a way to prioritize for ourselves and ask people to not send so much paper. <laughs> one, one more. <clears throat> one day when I was gardening here at the temple, um, a woman came along and she rushed up to our big redwood tree and just gave it a great big hug. And she was just filled with so much love. And so I, I, and she told me that she comes here periodically to do that. She loves that tree. And you mentioned, you know, we should really come from a place of love. And that's really, you know, a good beginning for her. I mean, she's just a beautiful, beautiful person. Yeah, nice. So can it come from love? Can it come from care, our wisdom, can it come from what's really beautiful in our hearts? Um, but, um, and hopefully that's enough to be passionately active, to really, you know, that we, we give ourselves over um, to what the world needs of us. There's a big need.